Well, if you have your, uh, your sermon outline that you got when you walked in the door this morning, you can kind of just ignore that. And same for you kids, you're going to have some different stuff written down than what you're going to see up here. That's because, um, unfortunately, Ryan came down sick, and so I kind of knew this might happen this week, so I've kind of been preparing a little, but I had to kind of do a bunch of stuff at the last minute this morning. So here's the good thing. If you have the Bible app on your phone, our church's app, you can open that up, and it has the correct notes in there because I was able to change that. So you still, one more good reason to download the church app, right? Put in a plug for that. So you'll find that there. Uh, kids, you can probably just write down your own notes. You can do that as well if you, uh, if you don't have the app already downloaded, and that'd be great. So I just want to let you know that what you're going to see this morning be a little different than what you might uh, be expecting. I know all of us, we go through difficult times in life, right? And sometimes when we go through those difficulties, it's really easy to think that maybe God doesn't really know what's going on in my life. Have you ever felt like that? I think all of us probably have from time to time, right? We, we go through some difficult circumstances. We wonder, God, do you, do you really know what I'm going through? And if that's the case in your life, whether it's now or whether that's been the case in the past, you're you're in good company because we see that all throughout the Bible, right? Especially in the Old Testament. I mean, all you have to do, go read through the Psalms. It's full of people who thought God didn't really know what was going on in their life. I think probably my, bet, my favorite example is Elijah. Remember Elijah? He's running from Queen Jezebel, and he goes and he hides in this cave, and he's like, God, you don't know how bad this is for me. I mean, just go ahead and let me die. And a lot of you have probably felt like that before. But the good news, as we're going to see this morning, is that God does know. God does understand. Even before we cry out to him, God knows what's going on in our lives, and and he's already at work there. And that ought to be a tremendous encouragement for all of us as we face difficulties in our lives from time to time. Ought to be an encouragement when we're going through good times too, right? Now, this morning we're going to begin a a new sermon series on the book of Exodus, and we're going to be spending our time in the book of Exodus, I guess, all the way up through, for those of you guys that are still in school, up through spring break, so for over a couple of months. And you might be asking me, Pat, why are we going to spend, you know, two and a half months in an Old Testament book? I mean, how's that, that really relevant for us? And if you're thinking that, again, you might not be alone in that thinking. There was a a well-known pastor here in the United States a few years ago who encouraged people to, quote, unhitch from the Old Testament. He even claimed that that's what Jesus and, and Peter and Paul and some of the New Testament apostles did. But that's just not true, is it? I mean, think about it. Why, why is it important that we should study the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, to me, there's, it's a very simple answer. That's the Bible that Jesus read. And that is the Bible that the, the early apostles read. And if it was good enough for them, it, it seems like it ought to be relevant for us as well. And so here at Thornydale Family Church, we've always been committed to teaching from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you've been here for any time at all, you know that every year we cover passages from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And so we're going we're gonna to go through the book of Exodus here over the the next several weeks, and, and as you can imagine, it's a long book, so we're not going to get down into every single verse, but what we're going to do is kind of pick some larger chunks of, 
of Scripture and look at those and see if we can't pull out kind of the overall themes and the overall ideas that we find there and see how relevant that they are to us. Now, the book of Genesis ends, and then there's about uh, a period of, of several hundred years before we get to the book of Exodus. But as we open the book of Exodus, we see that there's a kind of a connection or a tie back to the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 this morning. Obviously not every single verse in there, but we're going to be doing that. So you can follow along. I'm going to just read the first seven verses or so that that kind of give us an introduction into the book. Excuse me. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So we see here that uh, at the end of the book of of Genesis that there's about 70 people, (coughs) excuse me, from from Israel, the line of Israel that are in Egypt. And over the next 300 years or so, they greatly increase and, and they multiply. We don't know exactly how many of them there were by the time that the Exodus takes place, but, but there's some things later on in the book of Exodus that indicates it could have been as many as two and a half million people that eventually flee from Egypt. Can you imagine that? God has blessed the people of Israel greatly. Just as he promised he would do back when he came to Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And God had fulfilled that promise. But there came to be a a new king in Egypt, a king that didn't know Joseph and his family. And he began to to really oppress them. He began to, to, to make them do harder and harder labor and and put them into slavery because he was worried that this this great people that God was blessing day after day, they would become so numerous and so powerful that one day they would take over the kingdom of Egypt. And so this morning we're going to look and we're going to see that that even in the midst of all this, even in the midst of all that's going on here, even in the midst of all this oppression, that God does see what is going on there. Now, the overall theme of the book of Exodus is this, that God provides a deliverer for his people, and we're going to see that time after time. And that's particularly relevant to us because God also provides a deliverer for us. Now, we don't need to be delivered from slavery in Egypt, do we? But we all are in slavery Before we came to know Jesus, every single one of us was in slavery. We were in slavery to sin, and we needed a Redeemer. And so at least one of the reasons that the book of Exodus is is so relevant for all of us is because as we understand 
how God delivers his people, Israel, out of Egypt, we also learn some things about the way that he delivers us out of bondage to sin. And so that's why the book is so relevant for us. And so this morning as we dig into these first couple of chapters, here's the the main idea that we're going to pull out out of these verses here, and that is this. Even when it might not look like it, God knows. God knows. It may not look like it, but God knows. And we're going to see why that that ought to be such a great source of comfort and encouragement and, and joy for all of us to understand that, that when we go through difficult times, God knows. As I said, as they, as they grew Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he began to oppress the Israelites more and, and more and more. And they still continued to prosper. And so the king decides he's going to go ahead and he's going to take things kind of to the next level. And so let's pick up in verse 15 and see what he decides to do. It says this, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And so you see the instructions he gives. He says to him here, he says to the midwives, you need to go ahead and kill these little babies. Now we hear some hints there, don't we? We see some, some parallels what, what happens in the days of Jesus when King Herod does essentially the same thing. And he, he commands the people to kill all the little babies that are two years old and younger. But even though the people of Israel have not yet cried out to God, God is at work in their midst. God knows what's going on, and God is at work in their midst. So let's see what happens. We'll pick it up in verse 17. It says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now this is pretty amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, these these Hebrew midwives, it says that they feared God. And I was thinking a lot about that this week. How, how did they come to the place in their life where they feared God? And the only answer I can come up with was that over the, uh, the hundreds of years since the time that the Israelites had gone into Israel, that they had continued to pass down to their families the things that God had done for them. And so they understood who God was. And they understood how faithful God was to carry out his promises. And so they decided that rather than fear the king, they're going to fear God. Now, you have to remember that at this point in time, the law hasn't been given yet. So there's no command not to murder. But, but somehow they still understood that, that in God's kingdom, that murder was going to always be wrong. I suppose it goes all the way back to to Genesis chapter 4 when Cain slays Abel, right? But they knew that that was wrong. 
And they chose to obey God rather than to, to obey men and to fear men. And because of that, it says God blessed them greatly, gave them their own families. And there's a principle that we find here, one that's important. It's not really the main idea, but, but I think it's one that we need to, <coughs> excuse me, to pull out of here. And it has to deal with how we deal with government officials today. And here's the principle that we find here, that we're to obey and to respect our government authorities, except, and this is the only exception, when they require us to do something that violates the Scriptures. And to be real honest, there aren't a lot of those places, a lot of times that that happens here in this country. Around the world it certainly does. So the general principle here is that we're to obey, obey, to respect, to pray for them, as Paul writes to us, unless they go over the line and cause us to do something that would violate the Scriptures. And so we see here how, how God blesses them. And then we see what most of us probably know, the, the, the story that occurs then beginning in the next chapter where, where this unnamed man and woman, Hebrew woman, they have a child, a little baby. And this little baby is put in a basket and hid out in the river. And in a plot twist that only God could work out, I mean, let's face it, the baby's mom gets hired by Pharaoh's daughter to take care of her own son. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there's no doubt God God is at work in that. Now, it's really interesting that that, uh, Moses' parents, they're not even named until we get to chapter 6 of Exodus. And I think there's a reason for that. There we find out um, that his dad was named Amran, his mother was named Jochebed. And the reason they're not mentioned is because when we get to chapter 6, we, fe- we find out that Amran married his aunt, Jochebed, which once the law was given, now remember it hasn't been given yet, but once the law is given, that would be a prohibited union. So God's already at work. He's working through something that, that, that we wouldn't expect him to work through, through this union that shouldn't even have existed, and yet God, in his sovereignty, he's working through that because he knows he has a plan for his, the people of Israel that he's going to work through. And he's at work. And then one day, Moses grows up. And instead of, of identifying with the people of Egypt, now remember, he's raised in the king's court there in Egypt, basically raised as a grandson of the Pharaoh. But instead of holding on to that, he still identifies with his people, the Israelites. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews describes this. Here's here's what it says. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Wow, that's that's something we could learn from, right? Instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of this world, the world that he he lived in, he chose instead to be identified with the people of God and to suffer as a result of that. And so when he's 40 years old, he goes out into the field, he sees an Egyptian basically hurting a fellow Hebrew, and he takes things into his own hands. 
and he kills the Egyptian. And a few days later, he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other, and he tries to break up that fight, and they're like, dude, who made you king over us? I mean, that's essentially what they're saying. Who put you in charge? And Moses just realizes, okay, the secret's out. And it tells us in this passage that, <coughs> that even the king of Egypt was trying to kill him. So he takes off, and, and he flees, and he goes to Midian. And there he, he marries a wife named Zipporah, and he has a child. And God has to use the next 40 years of his life to prepare him for the role that we're going to see that he's called to when we look at chapter 3 next week. Important lesson for us there too, isn't there? We need to be careful not to take things into our own hands. I mean, he, he, this guy committed murder. Let's face it, not a, not a pretty thing. And yet in this entire time, through all this, we see not one time that the people of Israel call out to God. You can read chapters 1 and chapter 2 till you get to the very end. Not one time to the people of God or the people of Israel call out to God. And yet, God is working that entire time, isn't He? In His sovereignty, He's doing amazing things that nobody could imagine. <laughs> In spite of their opposition, He's multiplying the nation of Israel into a great, gigantic nation of maybe two and a half million people. He preserves the life of Moses when, when Moses should have been killed. He preserves Moses again when he could have been killed by the king of Pharaoh, or the, the king of Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. He's working this entire time to raise up a deliverer for his people that no one would expect. A guy that's a murderer, a guy that runs away for 40 years, becomes a shepherd. And God is working through this entire time. But Why? Not because the people deserve it, but because he'd made a promise to them. And God is always faithful to keep his promises, even when we don't keep our part of the bargain. But then we get to the end of the chapter, and this is the part I really want to focus on this morning. So go ahead and look down at verse 23. And here's, here's what it says at the end of this chapter. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And finally, finally, it says they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And God knew. So we see here that there's, there's four things that God does here that proves that even when it might not seem like it, God knows. He takes four actions here in response to the people crying out to him that show that God knows even when we don't see it. The first thing we see here is it says that God hears. Now the verb here is an interesting verb. It's not the verb that means to go in one ear and out the other. It's not talking about the kind of hearing that I'm sometimes guilty of when I'm 
engaged in some activity and my wife says something to me and I just kind of say, yeah, hon, keep on doing what I'm doing. I know none of the rest of you guys ever do that, right? But that's not what it's talking about here. This this verse means to to really listen intently with the idea of understanding and, and being obedient when it talks about us as human beings. So we see here that that God's not just kind of, you know, have the radio on in the background kind of thing. God, God hears the cry of His people. He's paying attention. He's waiting for them to cry out to Him. And He's still waiting for us today to cry out to Him so that He can hear us. The second thing we see here is it says that God remembers. God remembers. And I need to spend a little more time on this one because if we're not careful we could come away with the wrong idea here. And it, it mainly the reason we could do that is because of the way we think of remembering in our culture or the way we think about forgetting. I mean, let's face it, God is 100% omniscient. That's just a big word that means he knows everything. So God doesn't forget, right? I think we'd all agree with that. So what does it mean when it says that God remembered? Now, for us, remembering is kind of a, it's something that takes place in the mind. But when, when the Bible says that God remembers, and we're gonna, we see that all throughout the Old Testament, time after time, God remembered, God remembered. What it means is, is that He hears from His people and He acts based on the promises that He's already made. doesn't mean He's forgotten. He knows the promises He's made. He hasn't forgotten them. But in some way that we don't totally understand, God sometimes waits to work until his people cry out, and then he acts in response to their cry. And that's what's happening here. It says that God remembers. And so he's about to take action, as we'll see in the next chapter. The third thing here is it says that God saw. And again, this isn't, I mean, he just gave a quick glance. The word here, the verb here, means to examine something carefully so that you can understand it. And the picture we see here is that God looks down upon their plight and He understands every single thing about it. He knows how their heart aches. He knows the tremendous pressure that they're under. He sees every single thing about that. So God knows. And then finally it says that God knew. Ha, this is my favorite part. God knew. What did God know? God knew everything, didn't he? He'd seen this all along. God wasn't wasn't caught off guard by what was going on here. It wasn't like all of a sudden God looks down and goes, oh my gosh, they, they, they cried out now, what do I do now? I had no idea this was coming. In fact, God had actually predicted exactly what was going to happen to them Way back in Genesis chapter 15, here's what he said to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will sojourn, be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But, but, I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You see, God knew. He knew exactly what was going to happen. 
And whatever you're going through in your life right now, God knows. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows every detail. He knows your emotions. He knows your thoughts. He knows all the circumstances that are going on around you. And not one of them caught, caught him by surprise. Because as I said with the kids earlier, he's the one that writes the story of your life. We see this same thing. We're going to see the same thing again when we get to Exodus chapter 3 next week. In verse 7, we see something that's, that's very similar to the end of, uh, of chapter 2. Here's what we, we'll see next week. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Not just seen, he's surely seen. Who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. If you're suffering right now, God knows your suffering. So what are some implications for me? What, what does this really mean to me in real life? I wanna, I'm going to share with you just a few things that I, I, I think are important implications for us. Here's the first one. Our past does not disqualify us from being by, used by God in the present. Don't you like that? I, I'm one of the most unlikely people ever to be standing before you today in a lot of ways. I didn't become a believer in Jesus till I was in college. I didn't go into vocational ministry till I was about 40 years old. Like Moses, I'm not the most eloquent of speakers. I don't have a seminary degree. And yet somehow in his, in his sovereign wisdom, God has chosen to use me here at Thornydale Family Church for almost the past 20 years. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that my past doesn't keep me from being used in the present. We certainly see that with Moses, don't we? I mean, he's the most unlikely guy for God to use to, to deliver his people out of Egypt. He shouldn't even have lived once he was born. He commits murder. He has to go off to 40 years in the desert shepherding sheep so God can humble enough him enough to be used. And as we'll see next week, when God does call him, he starts making excuses. Because he doesn't speak well enough. Now, I don't know what you have in your past, but I can tell you this. No matter what it is, it doesn't preclude God from using you right here and right now. And maybe God's calling you to do something and you say, God, I I can't do that. You know what? The reason God does this is because when he works through our weaknesses, who gets all the glory? God does. Not me, not you, not Moses. And so our past doesn't disqualify us from being used by God in the present. The second thing we see here is that God delights when we cry out to Him. God delights. Now, as we saw this morning, the fact that for 400 years or so, Israel doesn't cry out to God, it doesn't keep God from working in their lives. He's sovereignly working in their lives. He's blessing them. He's multiplying them. He's raising up a leader who's going to, lead them out of slavery there. But there's also something going on here that I don't personally completely understand. Maybe if you do, you can explain it to me. But somehow, in some way, when we cry out to God, when we pray to God, 
it somehow, I can't really say causes God to work, but somehow He works as a result of our prayer. I can't explain that. I can tell you this. We can't force God's hand by praying, right? I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is there's this, this mysterious way in which we cry out to God when we, when we pray to Him that God delights in that so much that He works in our lives and He involves us with the work that He's doing in this world. Isn't that amazing? I'm excited about that. And I think if we could just get a hold of this idea, it would completely revolutionize our prayer life. If we really believe that God delights in us crying out to Him, why would we not pray without looking at it as some kind of obligation or something that we ought to do? We're just going to do it naturally if we really believe that God delights in that. Then one last implication. Got the same one up there twice. Now I'm going to have to look at my notes. (laughs) God is blank, blank, yeah. God is at work in my life, even when I don't see it or understand it. That should have been the first one, but I put these slides together this morning at 6 o'clock, so (laughs) I wasn't quite awake yet. So just for that, God is at work in my life, even when I don't see it or understand it. You know what? God has a purpose in whatever you're going through. Whether that's a good thing, whether that's a difficult thing. And sometimes in this life, we, we may never understand the purpose. We may never see it, but God does have a purpose in what's going on in your life and my life right now. And we ought to take, we ought to take great joy in that, knowing that, that God has a purpose, even when we can't understand that. Man, Moses didn't know what was going on. The people of Israel couldn't see what God was doing and how he was going to bring them out of Israel, but God was at work. And he's at work in your life, even when you don't see it or understand it. So we've seen this morning that that even when it might not look like it, God knows. God knows. And my prayer for you this morning is, first of all, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, then I pray this message this morning, that this passage this morning, would be a great encouragement for you, especially if you're going through some difficulty or trial in your life right now. That knowing and understanding that God knows everything about it, that He's at work, even when you don't cry out, but that He's waiting for you to cry out to Him, that ought to be a great encouragement to you in your life. It ought to help you to have joy and hope and peace, even in the midst of the most difficult trials of life to know that God knows. He knows everything, and He's at work. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, then my prayer for you is that this morning this would speak to your heart, would help you to understand that you also need to be delivered, not not from slavery in Egypt, but you need to be delivered from your sins. And the Bible tells us there's only one way that that can happen, and that's by putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone. So if you've never done that, would you make that decision today? We're here to help you understand that.
and walk you through that. In just a few minutes, I'll provide you with some information how you can let us know you'd like some help with that. I pray this morning that you'll be encouraged to know that even when it might not look like it, God knows. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do know every detail of our life. Even when we don't see it, Father, you know. And we're really grateful for that. I want to especially pray this morning for some who might not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I pray today that you would speak to their hearts, you would draw them to you, that you would help them to, to make that decision to commit their lives to you. And for the rest of us who have already done that, Father, pray you'd encourage us with this knowledge that you know. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If there is any